like Paul Wilson said, it's not about winning or losing. It's about improving people's lives. For a lot of Democrats, you know, professional types, it's about, we just need to win an election. So, and now we're getting the educated voters, we're getting the suburban moms, and that's our new coalition. And so if there are rural people suffering disproportionately from an opioid crisis or their family farms are going under or they don't have broadband access, their water's poisoned, who cares? Which to me is just politics without a moral moral core. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Irene Lynn, who's currently the campaign manager for Tom Nelson for Senate in Wisconsin. He's working to be the Democratic nominee in the key race against incumbent Republican Ron Johnson. It was great talking to Irene, who's put together a very interesting career in democratic politics and government, and has a lot to say about both. It was serendipitous that I happened to interview her on the same day as a former candidate, for whom she was also campaign manager, my guest of two days ago, J.D. Scholten. Irene brings a perspective that we need to hear more of. You'll want to listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Irene Lynn of Tom Nelson for Senate. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Irene, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Irene Lynn. I am originally from Southern California. My parents are from Taiwan. I've been doing politics and social movement building for the last couple decades. And right now I reside in Appleton, Wisconsin, managing a Senate race, one of the key Senate races that we have against Ron Johnson. My candidate's name is Tom Nelson. Prior to this, I uh, managed campaigns, other Midwest campaigns for J.D. Scholten in Iowa, who ran against the notorious Steve King and helped get rid of him from our Congress. I also was the policy director for the Obama reelect campaign in Iowa, worked on Claire McCaskill's first Senate race. So currently kind of an honorary Midwesterner. I also worked on Capitol Hill for Betty McCollum from Minnesota. Congresswoman. I worked for the House Ways and Means Trade Subcommittee. I was also in the Obama administration as an appointee, both at USDA Rural Development and at HUD. And I was also doing nonprofit advocacy at the National Family Farm Coalition for a few years. So I've, I've been on both the advocacy and movement side as well as within electoral politics, kind of like following um, my political hero, Paul Wellstone's. Uh, model triangle of how we actually affect change in America, where you need both the movement side, the electoral side, based on sound progressive public policy. So that's kind of my career in a nutshell. I mean, that's been all over the place. Yeah, it's a 
you found yourself in the middle of a lot of action, I think, and a pretty interesting path. At what point did Paul Wellstone become a hero? When did you become aware of his work and and think of him in that way? You're not the only one. Well, yeah, I'm glad to hear that because it breaks my heart. Anyone under the age of 30 or like my interns, they have no idea who Paul Wellstone was or is. And, you know, we just passed the anniversary of his death. Um, and it's interesting, Tom Nelson, the candidate I work for, he actually went to Carleton College inspired in part by Paul. So sees himself in that same vein. I think it might have been college where I just heard about this, you know, radical professor who was of the people because I was at a liberal arts school like Carleton. I, I went to Amherst College. And the fact that he made his name both in the civil rights, because his I think his thesis that he did at UNC was on um, the civil rights movement or something with African-American history. And at the same time, his first political action was helping farmers protest on an electric line running through their property and their farms. And so he was someone who just really understood, you know, the uniting of disparate traditions into a progressive coalition that can advance the common good. And that's how I got interested in the, the whole Minnesota Democratic farmer labor tradition. I was like, oh, that just makes sense to me. <laughs> and, you know, in part why I became, became a Democrat. And, uh, and I, so I tell, you know, these young kids who never heard of him, like, Paul Wellstone was Bernie before Bernie. And it is one of the great what ifs of history to me. Had he lived? Had he actually run for president? Because uh, the thing about Bernie is, you know, he's not, he's not a Democrat, as people say. Uh, he doesn't like people too much. And, uh, Paul Wilson, he loved people, right? And he's, his line was, I'm from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. And, you know, that's sort of more my politics, whereas Bernie was of the, you know, Eugene Debs, you know, socialist variety, which, which I think is, you know, has a very real place in American history. But in terms of like, I think it could have sold some of these ideas maybe a little better. Uh, you know, I, I always think, what if Paul, Paul had lived? And Paul's another guy who, I don't know. And he doesn't look like a U.S. senator exactly, right? He he had no, he's a, a short Jewish, you know, Ukrainian <laughs> immigrant wrestler. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's to me, you know, when when we sometimes we get caught up Democrats in identity and politics. I was like, look, this guy from he was born and raised in Virginia, goes to Minnesota. He can identify with the Iron Range mine workers. He can identify with family farmers, you know, in the Southwest Minnesota. He can identify with Somali immigrants. The Hmong community loved. Actually, I heard about him through the Hmong community. My friend Paku Hang was his deputy campaign manager because Paul helped uh, get the legislation introduced that allowed her grandfather to become a U.S. citizen because he helped fight for us during the, the Vietnam War. And she was like, this guy, you know, fights for my community. Nobody else has ever done that in the U.S. Senate. Um, and, and so I think that tour of politics was very inspiring um, to me. Yeah, I, was, I just remember him dying and then the second blow of Walter Mondale not being able to hold the seat. Yeah, I'm not over it. Like every time somebody brings up his name or it's November and you remember the plane crash, I, I still just cry. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, all of us. And I got to work for a Minnesota Congresswoman. So, you know, that, that legacy is still so deep and, and people remember him um, so well. And the Domestic Violence Act, you know, people credit Joe Biden rightly with it, but it was Sheila Wellstone who was also instrumental in helping get that passed. So it's just, yeah, a monumental legacy that, um, that was really lost. So you said you went to Amherst. 
another fine liberal arts school. What did you study there? Yeah, I actually studied American studies due in part to, you know, growing up kind of sheltered in Southern California, you know, the LA riots and Rodney King that happened when I was in high school. And that's kind of like how I became politicized because I just, you know, I was pretty sheltered life and I was like, you know, stuff's burning down. I don't understand how these cops get off when they're like on video. When you're so young, you're trying to make sense of it. You know, there were some riots in neighboring communities where I lived. And I also always remember my mother saying, because, you know, the Korean American community was targeted. She was like, see, look at these black people. They're rioting. We're law abiding, you know, citizens. We're hardworking. We're not like them. And look at them targeting us. And so I was very disturbed by by the whole Asian and black relationship and those tensions. And so wanting to go to college and kind of understand that. And then when I took class, I'm like, oh, no, the Watts riots happens or the 1919 red riots, you know, like, oh, this stuff happens all the time in American history, you know, and then you legacy of, you know, slavery and discrimination and segregation or blockbusting, redlining, all those things that you don't know when you're 14 years old watching, you know, your city go up in flames. And so that was what inspired me um, at Amherst. Did you go out of college right into politics? I actually wanted to be a reporter. So on all my um, internships when I was an undergrad, I was political in the sense that I wanted to expose injustice, <laughs> you know, and write about it. Uh, and I was on like the school newspaper. Um, and so I was political in that way. And then I actually ended up going to Zimbabwe for a year to be a reporter. I found a job there, um, kind of like this Time Magazine type of investigative journalism and that's how I wrote about farmers and GMOs and Monsanto, things I had no, no clue about, uh, the WTO and the TRIPS agreement, you know, keeping pharmaceutical prices high when we have an AIDS crisis. So I think I became more political by that. And then um, at some point decided I wanted to stop writing about it and actually wanted to impact policy in a more real way. And so how did you get into the campaign game or the politics game here? Yeah, it's funny. I actually answered a Craigslist ad when I was living in the Bay Area temporarily. And it said just like, wanted someone who can write, preferably Democrat. Like that was that was the Craigslist ad. And I was like, oh, you know, I was very young. I was like, I need a job. And so I ended up uh, working for what's called an opposition research firm with Mike Rice. He's one of our premier Democratic research firms. It was We were in the basement of Oakland. And he was like, yeah, we basically investigate people and, uh, you know, politicians and we hold them account or we do defensive research and make sure stuff doesn't come out against our candidates. And I was like, I had no idea there was this actual field, you know, opposition research, right? A lot of people don't know about it. Now it's been more exposed, I think, over the years uh, that, you know, we, we do these things. But at the time I was like, wow, this is great. And so it was a good use of my reporting and writing skills to, to do it only for, you know, partisan purposes now. So this was back in 2002. So I wrote these research books on two governor's races. It was Janet Napolitano, Arizona, and Bill Richardson in New Mexico. And if you recall, 2002 was a very bad year for Democrats, especially as the Iraq war was being uh, uh, thought about. And so those were two of the races that we won that year when it was, um, in general, a very bad year. And I remember that that year really soured me on Democratic politics because I was so disgusted with D.C. Democrats just rushing to war, supporting the Bush tax cuts. Obviously, you know, I'm in the Bay Area, so people are, are thinking a little differently. But I just remember that feeling of betrayal. That really got me thinking, like, you know what, we need 
better Democrats. And these DC pollsters have no idea what they're doing because they're telling our clients, oh, you just vote for the war, just get it out of the way. And, or, you know, and, and, you know, we'll be okay. And I just remember thinking that that advice was complete nonsense. Did you learn a lot doing research? Oh my God, I learned everything. I, you know, I tell people, you know, if you want to go into politics, research is a great way. It's a foundational way to learn. I've been at these conferences or spoken on panels where they're like, what are the big mistakes you made on your campaign that you regret? And usually it has to do with opposition research, like, oh, I forgot that my guy didn't pay his taxes or, you know, my guy had a domestic assault case, you know? Uh, so it's usually when you win or lose, a lot of time it's because you screwed up your research. Or when you think about the Ralph Northam race, how did nobody discover that he was in blackface in a yearbook, you know, or in a KKK? Like that to me, I, I remember texting some of my friends women on Tom Periello's race, who I had supported and knocked doors for. I was like, how did you all miss this? You know, so I think it's a it's a fun it's a fun way to do things. Um, you know, if you're antisocial, like I tend to be, uh, you know, you don't like knocking doors and talking to people. You just like being on the computer and digging up stuff all day. It's a great thing. And even when I went to the Hill, you know, thinking like an opposition researcher, when you're going up against Republicans on whatever issue it is, those skills, I think, um, always, always do come in handy. I've seen that. I've seen people who started out their careers that way and carry that ethic of checking things out very carefully and, and doing your due diligence through into other careers. It's pretty interesting to see. Yeah. One of my pieces of research, you know, on Bill Richardson, you know, he was running against this guy, John Sanchez and, you know, who kept saying, Oh, I'm a small business guy. I run a roofing business. And it turned out he had been a, a flight attendant for a decade or something. And so Bill Richardson cut some really great ads about him being a flight attendant and it made it into like the almanac of American politics, which is kind of like, you know, the encyclopedia uh, for, for reps. And so I was like, when I read it in there, I was like, Oh, you know, you feel proud that you're, that you have that, you uh, had something to do with it. And even when I was at my nonprofit at the National Family Farm Coalition, I actually got a hit on Hillary Clinton right before the Iowa caucuses because she basically appointed a factory farmer to be her rural co-chair. Factory hog farms are extremely controversial um, across this country. And I couldn't believe that she had done that. And so I leaked it to a reporter on the Des Moines Register, and it just happened to show up a couple of days before the Iowa caucuses. So I kind of have that one framed. So yeah, so I think just uh, having that mentality has been very helpful for me, no matter what I do. So, so yeah, so I'm always partial to people who are on the research side of things. I'm, I'm always interested how people develop their careers in politics. What came next for you? How, how did the research lead into the next thing? Yeah, it was a shame. Because I've been in Zimbabwe, um, right, as a reporter, and I ended up because the magazine I was with went, went out of business, uh, you know, the Zimbabwean economy was not doing well. Uh, so I ended up with uh, a guy named Yash Tandon, who had founded an NGO, uh, basically advocating for Africa in the World Trade Organization. And then he goes to me and I asked him, can I, can I be your research assistant? I don't have a job now. <laughs> I'm still in Zimbabwe till the end of the year. He's like, oh, yeah, sure. Come, come join me. He's like, there's going to be this conference in Seattle. You know, you might be interested in coming with me. And I had no idea, right? I've been out in the United States for a year. This is 1999. And but the more I started researching, because our job was to make sure all the African delegation didn't sign away their natural resources as they keep you know wanting to do. And so we were preparing for the conference and I kind of see what's going on and people are preparing uh, here. But we're focused on, on just 
the African delegation in interest. And I end up accompanying Yash because he got to be part of the official Zimbabwe delegation. So I had like an official badge. So I could go everywhere I wanted in Seattle. And then so when I came back to the States and I was like, holy God, you know, like there was all these massive riots, you know, Starbucks is being torn down by anarchists, you know, and that that event was so significant because it really was the first shot that, you know, not everyone's happy with neoliberalism and global capitalism and free trade. And, and so I remember just being so moved by that just because everybody was there. There was unions, there were family farmers, there were indigenous people. It was like every social movement was there in Seattle, which again, a lot of people who were born after that time, you know, they don't remember it. And I told them, well, you know, there's a movie guys It's called battle of Seattle. You can go see it. Um, And that was when I said, you know what, I got to go back to graduate school and study this stuff some more. And that's when I went to Johns Hopkins to get a degree in public policy. But I specialized in like kind of like international political economy. During my time in grad school was when I applied to be a researcher on Howard Dean's presidential campaign because I was still so ticked off about the Iraq war. His presidential campaign really inspired me, inspired a lot of people. Uh, so I ended up going to Vermont and being a little researcher uh, for for the summer when when I was in grad school. So that was kind of like the next path. Is that when you met Bobby Clark, who I had on? Yes. And you said sent me an email saying, oh, my God, I, I know that guy. Yeah, I haven't talked to Bobby in years. You know, he was such a great, great, great guy. I mean, I, yeah, I lived that summer in a house with a lot of people who have gone on to do like, you know, really significant significant things in, in the progressive movement. So even though we lost, right, it was a dev- my first devastating political loss because I believe so strongly in Howard Dean and what we were doing. But yeah, so it was, it was great to, to hear him. But um, yeah, so that campaign uh, was really life-changing because before that I had kind of like written off electoral politics in a way, but I think I was so angry about the war. Here was someone that was actually speaking truth to the party. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to go to Vermont, survive the negative 40 degree temperatures and do what I can for this guy. So that was kind of my next move. And then um, when I graduated from Hopkins, I was really, really lucky. There's this women's congressional fellowship program that's been around for like 40 years. And so I was able to get one to work on Capitol Hill because I wanted to go on the policymaking side. And so I worked for the House Ways and Means Trade Subcommittee because, again, trade being my issue. And I knew the Central American Free Trade Agreement was coming up, which had been the biggest trade agreement since NAFTA, which I thought had destroyed the Democratic Party and our manufacturing base. So I went there and I worked there all through CAFTA until we ended up losing that vote. And, you know, this is when it's Bush, it's one party government. So I'm like, this is pretty miserable here. Uh, You can't do much as a Democrat being in the minority on the House side. And so that's when I said, hey, I want to help us get a majority. And so I was very, very lucky uh, through Emily's list. I became Claire McCaskill's research director that year in 2006. And that's when we took over the Senate. So that was pretty exciting. So I think, you know, my story in politics is a little rare because I'm not your typical kind of campaign hack that stays in the the campaign lane, I, I do enjoy going in and out of government, you know, that's because I find in D.C. like they want to put you in a box, like either you're the campaign hack or you're the policy hack. And I definitely know people on the Hill like they know nothing about politics. They know nothing about GOTV, what the van is, what call time is for fundraising. Right. And you got people who I work with on campaigns who did not know, you know, diddly about policy, you know, and you'd have to explain stuff to them. Um, and so I think it's been beneficial. And I always tell people, you know, when you're looking for a career, like 
to me, the best people are able to understand both worlds fluently. Yeah. I mean, and Ways and Means is, it's one of the couple most powerful committees. You you must've got quite an education about Congress being there for a while. Oh yeah. And you know, I was so naive too about Congress because, you know, I wasn't one of those that ever wanted to intern on Capitol Hill or intern at the White House. I think those were just things I just like a lot of, I think, people of color or, you know, just you just never think that that's something I can do. It was only until I was in grad school, I was like, oh, OK, this is something that I, I should try for. And I was so naive about even like what Ways and Means was. I, I just knew I wanted to do trade policy. And so I literally Google, you know, Congress trade, you know, and it comes up with, oh, there's this committee called Ways and Means that handles trade policy. And what I did next was I just called the subcommittee. I was like, hey, I'm a graduate student. I really want to, you know, work on trade issues. I mean, it's kind of like good ignorance in a way. And because I ended up talking to like the chief counsel, who's like the NIC, like is on like the most powerful DC list. But I had no idea who he was when I'm talking to him. <laughs> I'm just like enthusiastic, like, hey, I really want to work for you. And he's like, oh, yeah, we, we could use some help. And I think this is good in, in a way that Democrats were in the minority because we're in the minority, you have no resources. And so he's like, you know, we just got two lawyers here. So, yeah, we could use all the help we can get. And then later I was told by my fellowship um, head, she was like, yeah, no, usually it doesn't work that way. You know, it's been 15 years since we've had a fellow work for the Ways and Means and you just call them up, you know, and, 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 and when I realized how hard it is to get a job on the Hill, I just feel like tremendously lucky that, you know, that that just happened. And um, but I got a real education into basically the Democratic divide, because, you know, even though our committee was against CAFTA, historically, that subcommittee had been the people that passed NAFTA. These were the people that passed and wrote, you know, permanent normal trade relations with China. So I kind of felt like an interloper, like, oh, wait, this isn't actually what I believe, but it's good for me to know this side. And then we have to work with the progressive side, which is kind of led by Sherrod Brown at the time in the House. And they actually don't like each other or get along, or they just think, oh, Sherrod Brown, he's that crazy protectionist guy, you know, where are the enlightened free traders? Uh, so it was very interesting. So that, which I think still sort of divides the Democratic Party to get that education and kind of like understand. I was like, wait, I thought we're all Democrats here. I thought we're all on the same side. And then you're like, no, uh, you know, and so you have to navigate some of those issues. Yeah, it feels like both parties are a little divided on it now. Yes, it's been exploited um, by Trump where, yeah, the now the Republicans are the anti-free traders. Perhaps if they have any clarity on it. So tell me about McCaskill. Tell me about that race. That was a big one. It was. And so this was the first time I actually got to be the senior and paid staff full time. You know, I got there pretty early on, you know, over a year. And um, and that was when I actually got to put into practice some of, you know, the the Wellstone farm politics that was that I was interested in, because in Missouri, there's this great group, which nobody knows about, uh, but they're called the Missouri Rural Crisis Center. They've been around since the 80s. They were formed during the farm crisis. And uh, Rhonda Perry, one of my heroes, uh, she's a hog farmer, leads the group. And I had read about them in graduate school, and I knew about their work um, basically on uh, these hog factory farms, which are a huge issue in Missouri. And they were trying to preserve you know, local health ordinances to be able to regulate these guys because you know, they're environmentally destructive things. And it was also driving out all the hog farm, you know, the family farm hog farmers. So there's a real social movement in Missouri. You know, everyone wants to say, oh, it's a red state. These people are pissed off about it. And there was this issue called animal ID, which is still kind of going on. But USDA basically wanted to tag every single animal in America and make you report their movements. 
But if you had a factory hog farm, you could have just one number. But if you're grandma with 10 hogs, you had to have 10 different ID tags. So this, yeah, you can Google it. It was, it was just such a fascinating issue. And so I started hearing about it from these farmers. They were just so upset about it. And then again, on my awful research, I found out that there's somebody who leads a subcommittee that is forcing this program on farmers and getting federal funding for Missouri to implement it. Now, who is that subcommittee chair? Jim Talent, our opponent, Senator Jim Talent. We basically killed him on this in the countryside. I had all these like farmers. I mean, they hated Claire's stance on guns, you know, abortion, all this stuff. But because she was against this um, this program, you know, they're like, okay, we're going to be with her. And uh, and so yeah, if you go back and you see some of those rural counties that she won, it's really quite extraordinary. And then you know, also the Iraq War was getting very very unpopular. So it was a very intense year. But you know, when we were able to to gain all those seats and and gain the majority, yeah, winning is a lot better than losing. So just, I'll just say that. Uh, so and and plus, you moved your career forward. I mean, being in the senior staff of a Senate campaign. Yeah, definitely. It was my first time being on that intensive a campaign. You also, okay, and this is what I also learned because I would be in these meetings with these um, consultants and all that. Their advice was just like, oh, let's, because let, actually one of the running battles that we had was like, they didn't want Claire to talk about the Iraq war. They're like, oh, she's a woman. No one trusts her on national security. So let's just you know, be quiet. You know, we want to go hold hogs. Some of the staffers like, look, guys, this is a mess. Like we got to be, we got to be aggressive about it. So, you know, it didn't, Iraq was not really part of our paid communications or ads or anything. I mean, I think towards the end, it just kind of fueled itself, right? As, as the backlash, but we, unlike some other candidates that cycle, we're not running on it. And that was when I was like, oh my God, these democratic consultants that control our party are a bunch of morons, even though I'm friends with a lot of consultants and I, I love a lot of them. But, you know, I think there is still a lot of those are, are still around some of those folks. And so that taught me that, you know, just because these are supposedly our best and brightest, like, and I'm very young, you should still challenge them. And that, you know, you can have your own, your own thoughts about how a campaign should be run. So it is sort of gratifying now that I'm, you know, in a position to manage that I can go with my instincts and not necessarily, you know, what the conventional wisdom is. That makes a lot of sense. What came next for you in the 08 cycle? Yeah, so interesting. So, you know, because, again, I'm a movement person, right? I saw that the next big legislative battle after CAFTA was going to be the farm bill, uh, and which usually makes people's eyes glaze over. But I think more and more people realize that the farm bill has not only impact on farmers in America and on our food system. I think Baca Pollan's book really woke up a lot of people to having, you know, a corn-based system for, for food is not, not the smartest thing in the world. But, you know, it's also a foreign policy issue just because with NAFTA and the WTO, you know, we've driven a lot of family farmers off the land around the world because of our multinational agribusinesses dumping all these cheap commodities and driving their farmers off the land, which I warned about, you know, when, I, when we were talking about CAFTA. I was like, guys, this is just going to fuel migration from these Central American countries when their farmers can't make a living because they can't compete, you know, with our agribusinesses. So I, I knew the farm bill was being negotiated. I knew there was a lot of like, you know, for the first time, I think kind of like social movements that were interested because before, right, farm bill had kind of been the sleepy backwater. And so you had a lot of, you know, international development, hunger, progressive groups that were getting involved. So one of the family farmers, Rhonda, who I had met in Missouri, who, by the way, had no idea that I was not a native Missourian. She's like, oh, I just thought you were a rural Missouri cowgirl, you know, because <laughs> I knew and could talk about, you know, livestock and 
ethanol and farm subsidies all day. And so she recommended me for a job with the National Family Farm Coalition, which also got its start during the farms crisis. And so I ended up there working on, so I don't really think in terms of election cycles too, I think in terms of like farm bill cycles. Uh, So that was like about the the 2008 farm bill. And, you know, at that time, there was also a very bad farm crisis, uh, especially among dairy farmers, which is still going on to this day, farm suicides and people going bankrupt because the prices had dropped to 1970s level. That's not accounting inflation. And so I was just kind of outraged that nobody was was talking about this. The ag world is so controlled by lobbyists and big money. And, you know, we're this little nonprofit trying to trying to represent family farmers and do our best. That's what I was doing. And I, I learned a, a whole lot. And I think it's actually great for my political side because I really got to know grassroots activists in every state. I know ranchers in North Dakota. I know dairy farmers in Vermont. You know, I know African-American farmers in Mississippi because they were all part of our coalition. And I just think that's really valuable to have that perspective rather than, you know, you just go to campaign campaign and, and you don't really get a sense of what people actually care about in those states. It can be become very pull-tested drivel from D.C. instead. And what was next after that? Yeah, but, you know, the campaign bug did hit. Um, you know, this guy, Barack Obama, who I was, who I was really into, Heard of him. Um, you know, in 2004, I actually had wrote an email cause we were all so upset that, you know, W got reelected. I was like, you know, watch out for this guy, Barack Obama. He's going to be the hope for us <laughs> in the future. I wrote in that email to, to a lot of my friends, which unfortunately I can't find cause it's on my hotmail account. <laughs> so I saw, so I saw that and I, you know, I was definitely, you know, eight years of George Bush. And I was like, oh, please, you know, we got to move on. And so I took a leave from from the coalition and, and went to Missouri, which was a February 5th state, and got to do some communications work for them when they needed help because of everyone was you know focused on Iowa and um, New Hampshire. And so it was really moving to me, you know, because Iowa had broken my heart four years ago, right? I was crying because Howard Dean had lost. And then so, you know, so then to be there when Barack Obama won that night is still definitely one of my most unforgettable nights in politics and we're all crying in Missouri and black and white folks. It, it was, it was really unifying. And of course I wish I could have stayed on. It's still one of the biggest regrets in a way that I was not able to st- stick with the campaign, but we were negotiating the farm bill at the time. And I just felt like I couldn't leave, you know, the farmers behind and leave all the work that I was doing. So I ended up staying through. And then, uh, this is stupidly what too, when, when people talk about what campaigns you should do. But I thought, you know, I want to have more of a say on a campaign, right? Rather, when you work on a presidential campaign, you know, you're like a cog in a big corporation, right? Because there's just so many people. And so I ended up um, on a congressional, a top targeted congressional race in New Jersey um, as communications director, because I thought, oh, I want to play a bigger role on a smaller race, which we ended up losing for numerous reasons. <laughs> on the night Barack Obama and most Democrats won. So that was that was actually pretty terrible in a way. Uh, but it showed me like, you know what, you should never do a race just because it sounds good or it looks good on your resume. You should do it because you believe in the candidate and you believe in the cause. So that's kind of like the one time I did that and sort of <laughs> regretted it. So yes, in retrospect, I should have just gone back to the Obama campaign. <laughs> and after that? So I went back to the, the National Family Farm Coalition and then, as you know, nonprofit work doesn't really pay very much, right? So I'm just like, I want to make more of a living wage. So I actually ended up briefly um, at the Department of Labor as a Recovery Act hire. You know, we had just passed the stimulus. They were trying to hire people to help implement it. But as 
if anyone's worked in federal government knows it can be a bit frustrating. <laughs> and especially if you're a political person, people who come from the political side, you know, we're used to getting things done, right? And we're used to like, we need it done yesterday. And you go to federal government and it's not quite the same way, right? It's like, we'll get it done in six months. So I found that very frustrating, even though I was getting you know, paid well for once in my life. And so I actually took a 30% pay cut and went back to Capitol Hill with Representative Betty McCollum and was so happy. <laughs> I think that's still sort of my favorite job, being on the Hill. When you're on Capitol Hill and you're representing your boss, you know, agencies take your calls, nonprofits take your calls, people take your calls, right? Uh, and so I, I remember when I was at the National Family Farm Coalition, like any time a Hill staffer calls, like, oh my God, it's Senator so-and-so's staff. We got to drop everything and, you know, answer to them. Uh, and, and so I, I really, really enjoyed that job. I did environmental issues for her. I did actually a fun thing. The first thing I did when I started working for Betty, it was in February, and that week was the markup of the Affordable Care Act. She was on the budget committee, which had to, which got to kick off the, the process, the reconciliation process, I think, to pass it. So literally like my first week, like, hey, Irene, go, go to the hearing markup. We're about, we're, they're going to mark up the Affordable Care Act. And so, and I kind of joked that it was all downhill from there after. <laughs> and then we ran into the tea party and then, and then all of that. So, but um, it, was, it was really rewarding um, to, to be part of her staff. So how did you get into managing campaigns? Yeah, and I say it's it's definitely a frustrating business um, because so much of it is can be predicated on who you know. I remember going to a DCCC management training, I forget, it was a couple years ago, because I was really hungry to learn and hungry to have a chance. And I was the only woman of color there. And it was like, 80% white guys. <laughs> and so, you know, I was telling everybody on Capitol Hill and I was like, guys, we have a problem. Like that room is all the future managers, the future political consultants, the future chief of staffs, lobbyists. And it's still overwhelmingly, you know, one-sided and a, for a party that depends on minority votes, like this is going to cost us. And I continue to say it. <laughs> I still don't think enough change has happened. I remember getting passed over for a lot of things and thinking like if a white guy had my resume, they'd be hiring me. What happened was when Trump won and, you know, I was out of a job because I, I was at HUD at that time and we were all, you know, all of us Obama appointees had to leave. My hu now husband, he uh, is a professor, political science. So he had gotten a job teaching at Case Western in Ohio. And I was like, okay, we should probably like try and be together. So and, and, I, and I knew Ohio was always an interesting political state. Uh, before Democrats wrote it off. So I went there and uh, figured I would find something to do. We, I knew we were going to have a governor's race with Rich Cordray, so I was really interested in working with him. Uh, but just through uh, networking, there was a guy named Grant Goodrich who was running for, uh, was it an open seat at the time? Yeah, open seat in Ohio 16, the Anthony Gonzalez seat. And he was like, oh yeah, I'd really be interested in you managing my race. And so that was kind of like my initial breakthrough I thought, oh, I've been on so many campaigns. How hard can it be to manage? But it's, it's definitely a new skill set. What are the new skills that you have to learn? Well, hiring, you know, HR made a lot of mistakes there. <laughs> also, I think budgeting is probably the number one thing that you're trying to figure out how much money you have and then that you can raise 
Oh, fundraising. I mean, fundraising is just the number one thing, right? I never had to worry about that on campaigns, right? I'm not the fundraiser. Why do I have to be concerned about how much call time is the candidate doing? Call time is another thing. I didn't really know about it. You know, I knew candidates did it. This is a funny thing. Yeah. When I first worked for Claire and I just thought campaigns were about ideas and policy because I was very idealistic. And they're like, Irene, no, she spends eight hours a day calling people for money. And I was like, really? That, that's what people do on these campaigns? That's horrifying. And I tell people that. Like, I, I think, you know, I was like, I always joke, you don't see this on West Wing. You never saw, you know, Jeb Bartlett do call time or Selena from Veep. That's the unspoken part that sucks up so much time. And so I had never dealt with that before. I didn't come from the finance side of things. And also I was dealing with a first-time candidate. And, you know, it's hard when you're first time and you're running for office and you're trying to raise money. Even though we got some training from the DCCC, you know, and people were trying to help us and I hired a finance director, but it's still, it's still really, really hard um, to do. And so I was kind of like learning my way through it too. And Did you hire all the consultants? Did the candidate, did the DCCC push them on you? How did that work? Yeah, essentially for this one, yes. We, a lot of times they already choose the consultants and you're just kind of coming in because a lot of times, you know, the consultants find you too, Right. Which I always tell candidates, I was like, you should probably get your manager first. Consultants can sometimes have conflicts of interest, right? And I have definitely seen this. I do think that there's a lot of insider corruption that goes on with the consultants and managers, you know, kind of a revolving door, right, where we help all each other out and it becomes about us and not about the candidate. So usually when I've gone in, it's like, these are the consultants that we're hiring. For J.D. Schulten's race later... Because with J.D. Schultz, he was actually smart. He hated consultants, didn't trust them, didn't want to pay them. And so I actually had to like beg him. I'm like, no, we need a pollster. Yes, we need a media consultant because you can't just write your own ads. You know, so, so in that instance, I had to convince the candidate that he needed some consultants. What do you think makes a good campaign manager? And how much difference does it, having a good manager make? Yeah, sometimes I think we get too much of the glory you know, in some of these, like, oh, we're the masterminds. Like, look, would Obama have been Obama? No matter David Pluff or Axelrod had been there, I kind of think Barack Obama would have been just fine, no matter who was his manager. The Hillary Clinton having, you know, badly run campaigns, you know, would she have won if she had a better people who told her to go to Wisconsin? You know, maybe. But I, I tend to think, you know, at the end of the day, it rises and falls with the candidates. I definitely believe managers can make a difference in terms of setting the culture hiring good people. All of us who have been on campaigns have our nightmare stories of campaign managers that were micromanagers or screamers or my favorite people that throw stuff. And the other thing about us and campaigns is that, you know, no one teaches us management school. And I actually have been through management training now a couple of times. Where do you find that training? There's a place called the management school that actually trains people for nonprofits and, and they're progressive. And I believe actually the Obama campaign did bring them in. And I just got to do that management school when I was um, in the government because the luxury of the government. So they're like, oh, yeah, we'll pay for you to have professional development. So when they were training me as a manager, it was kind of like to manage, you know, in the federal government. But I found all of their stuff very applicable to campaigns as well. So I was always like, you guys should really train campaign people. And they said, oh, yeah, we, we have worked with the Obama campaign a little bit. But I, I recommend it. So, you know, I've told people who, whether you're in a nonprofit or whatever you're working for, Capitol Hill getting management skills is, is really good. And, and here's one resource to do it. But it's not like I feel like corporate America or you get an MBA. Like I feel like they have better structures 
for that to help you with some of these skills. I um, normally don't interview candidates unless they're doing something else, but I am going to talk to J.D. Schulten soon because he's doing some rural organizing and stuff. What should I ask? Ask J.D.? Well, J.D., yeah, yeah he's... He's definitely not your typical political candidate. Now, I mean, he's doing, you know, movement building in rural America, which is so desperately needed among Democrats. He's among the few. And here's the thing with our party is that there's no funding for it. You know, everyone's so focused on other issues, which I'm not saying those issues aren't important, you know, whether it's racial justice, environmental justice, the climate crisis. Those are all key. But I feel like, you know, there's just no infrastructure we're getting killed in rural America. Absolutely. We're absolutely and, and the thing is like we don't care, right? We've written them off. I mean, the worst, you know, when Hillary said they're deplorable, uh, you know, we basically said we don't want your vote. And, you know, so I think the Terry McAuliffe race was the same playbook. I was really despairing about it. You know, a lot of these areas like Southwest Virginia, you know, Eastern Kentucky, those used to be Democratic areas. I mean, they, those people stuck with us through McGovern, Dukakis, you know, when the rest of the country was voting for Republicans, you know, labor led. Like Paul Wilson said, it's not about winning or losing. It's about improving people's lives. For a lot of Democrats, you know, professional types, it's about we just need to win an election. So and now we're getting the educated voters. We're getting the suburban moms. And that's our new coalition. And so if there are rural people suffering disproportionately from an opioid crisis or their family farms are going under or they don't have broadband access, their water's poisoned, who cares? Which to me is just politics without a moral, moral core. When I'm managing races now, I was like, I don't like I don't I will not take a race with like in that's a, in a wealthy suburban, formerly Republican area. That was my New Jersey race. <laughs> so I was like, oh, man, do I really got to like talk about, you know, why I like the carried interest rates and, you know, why the estate tax isn't a bad thing. I think Democrats have really surrendered their historic legacy, their moral legacy. I mean, we can't even tax billionaires right now in the Senate. We're not even going after Wall Street carried interest, you know, that's just off the table. And well, most of the Democrats are actually on the right side of that, I think. It just They are, but we still can't pass it in the Senate, right? I mean, it wasn't part of the House bill and yeah. It's a couple people. Yeah. So I would ask JD, you know, how do we get Democrats to actually start caring about rural? You know, every you know, JD talked, you know, every election cycle when we see we go further and further, like we're like, oh maybe now they're kill. Maybe now they'll wake up. Because the thing with Claire McCaskill's race is that she won because she did all this rural outreach. Like she toured extensively all over the place. You know, we had policy that was tailored to them and spoke to their issues, right, with this animal ID stuff. And so it can be done. And it's just, we've just kind of given up. I knew we were going to win that night. On, um, when I saw in Joplin County, which is like the most Republican county, we get like 10% of the vote there. I think we got like 25% of the vote and they come in first, right? These small rule. I was like, oh my God, we are getting 25% in Joplin County. We are so winning tonight. <laughs> you know, because of that. It does seem like the best campaigns we've run at different levels have been the ones where the campaigning was not so focused on the targeting, but more focused on fighting everywhere. It really seems like that matters. Yeah, that's why it's so bizarre whenever every time I have to read something about like, oh, do we go with communities of color and making sure the urban folks turn out or, you know, do we focus on these white suburban women or do we focus on, you know, the Obama Trump white working class voters? And I'm just like, uh, guys, we have to do everything, <laughs> you know, and, and here's the thing. The Republicans are they right now in Wisconsin, they have opened up offices in Milwaukee in Latino and black neighborhoods. They're not giving up. And yet when I tell people like we should try and reach for the rural votes, 
Someone's like, oh, those people will never vote for us. Those aren't our people, or we have to surrender our values to reach these deplorable people. And they're just Trump or white supremacists. I mean, it's such a condescending attitude, and it just drives me you know, insane. You know, on the Obama campaign, when I was in Iowa, we had constituencies for Latino, um, African-American, even African-Americans, like 2% of Iowa, right? But we had an African-American outreach person. We had a, a political person who did rural outreach. We, we had stuff for like sportsmen for Obama, signs and hats. We conceded nobody. Although, you know, I think the one part that I have always also advocated for is faith outreach. You know, most Americans are still going to church. Um, you know, this isn't Europe. And I think there's a real secular bias among the political class where I was told like, no, those Catholic, you know, Dubuque women, working class, those aren't our voters. I was like, are you kidding me? Because I was advocating that we do some Catholic events out there. And, and so, you know, I run up against those kind of cultural biases as well that, you know, ever since the Dean campaign, we've had this problem. Every time I think it gets better, and I think Obama was the last one, he did a tremendous job. You know, he would talk to white evangelicals. He would invite them to write their inauguration. And he really showed up at their conferences and just treated them with respect. You know, he wasn't expecting to get all those white evangelical votes, but, you know, he thought if he could make a difference, 5%, you know, that's huge. Tell me about your current race. How did you land the Nelson campaign and how's it going? You know, I thought I wanted maybe to do a presidential race in 2020. Um, but, you know, I liked a lot of the candidates, so I didn't really uh, have like a favorite per se. So I ended up doing a New Hampshire's governor's race uh, for a progressive there, Andy Valinsky, who had been endorsed by Bernie. And it's my first time doing a governor's race. So that was very interesting, too, because I think governor's races, you are able to do a lot of more localized issues and you don't have to worry so much about what's going on in D.C. or the Supreme Court or Russia, you know, a lot of stuff that whatever gets being played on MSNBC. That was kind of relief. And yet I got I got caught up in the New Hampshire primary because because um, all the candidates were there every other day. So it, it was fun being fun being in New Hampshire. But we ended up losing the primary because, you know, we were outspent like two to one by an establishment candidate. And so I thought I'd be able to take some time off. But then I, I got a call saying like, hey, you know, this, this great guy, Tom Nelson, wants to run in Wisconsin. I think he's your type. I mean, you know, progressive populist, uh, Wellstone kind of guy has a dairy farmer, you know, grandparents, Lutheran pasture kid. So I was like, yeah, absolutely my type. And the type, frankly, that I think can win a state like Wisconsin. Um, and so, and Tom decided to declare, he actually declared before the election was even over in November, because around the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, we thought we could generate some interest and some fundraising by getting in so soon and trying to take on Ron Johnson. And so I ended up not having a very long vacation because usually I enjoy my time off between campaigns, but decided that uh, I would get back into the fight. So I've been here uh, ever since. What's the primary look like? Yeah, it's a tough primary. And, and primaries are, are a difficult thing, too. I find it so funny. Democrats are so polite in our primaries. And you see the Republican side, right, where you can insult their wives or say that their dad killed Castro and nobody cares. But, you know, Democrats tend to not like, you know, much negativity. So, yeah, so there's about, you know, a dozen people running. Uh, but, you know, I definitely think there's probably like four or five legitimate candidates, Tom being one of them. And again, you know, like I said, it's sad. It's, it's fundraising that really determines whether you're viable, right, or not in the eyes of the the media and the 
elites in DC. And so Tom is, you know, he doesn't come from wealth, right? He's a pastor's son. He's he's been a local county executive here for a decade. So, you know, he hasn't been hanging out on in Wall Street or he doesn't know a lot of fancy lobbyists. It's difficult, right, to be able to raise money. Uh, even though, you know, he's as Wisconsin as it comes. And, you know, we're running against people who are self-funders and can write themselves a million dollar check. And we're running against people that have more of a national profile than he does. You have the lieutenant governor and uh, state treasurer, people already who've won statewide, right? Yes. Although I would argue Tom has won six times in a red county, Trump County, because he's from Outagamie County. And he, he's the only major candidate who doesn't reside in Madison or Milwaukee which I do think is a huge advantage, you know, as we're talking about trying to reach out to these rural areas, outstate areas. You think he'd be a better general election candidate for that reason? Yes. I mean, I, I think um, the electability argument, in my opinion, is is in our favor versus some, some of the other candidates who, you know, I, I think they all have their strengths and weaknesses. I just happen to think Tom is, is the best, what uniquely positioned to win this race. He also has written a book about saving a paper mill and 300 union jobs that the big banks wanted to close down. It's been a very well-received book because people are like, books written by politicians are just hagiography that don't mean much. But this one's actually a very substantive, you know, thoughtful work about future of, you know, labor unions, industrial policy, how we get manufacturing back in Wisconsin. When you read the book, you just have tremendous admiration for Tom and what he was able to do with the steelworkers to try and make sure we didn't lose these jobs. Because, I mean, it's, it's getting harder and harder. And as you can see, I think our supply chain crisis is very much tied to us offshoring everything to China, <laughs> you know? So I always joke, like, we don't want to outsource toilet paper, guys. So let, let's keep our paper industry here. What's the strategy? How do you think about how do we carry this primary plus position for the general? How are you going about that? Yeah, I think when you're a, kind of a scrappy underdog campaign, you know, I'm using as, you know, kind of like my inspiration, the Wellstone campaign, Russ Feingold also, if you remember him, when he ran in 1992, which is kind of like the last time we had a contested primary for Democrats for Senate here in Wisconsin, you know, he was not the favorite. Like no one knew who the heck he was. He didn't have much money. He was running against two uh, wealthy folks from, I think one of them was from Milwaukee. And so, uh, so I tell people when they think, oh, Tom doesn't have a chance, you know, he's not as rich as the others. He's not as well known as the other statewide candidates. I was like, well, you know, Russ Feingold was able to do it, kind of running this really progressive populist campaign. And, you know, he was not afraid to take risks. You know, he had these quirky ads that were kind of like homespun that people still remember. And so if you see some of our people go to our YouTube page, Nelson from Wisconsin, you'll see some of these ads that we've kind of tried to do. Where Tom holds a garage sale to sell his kids dinosaur toys because, you know, we need money. He talks about, you know, all his working class jobs growing up, you know, working at supper clubs and at the Piggly Wiggly. Um, at the paper mail, just to kind of like show these are my values. Um, and, and so I think those have kind of taken off where people- Who's making your ads? It's funny, again, because we are the underdog campaign. We have a consultant that's been uh, kind of volunteers. You know, I, I literally got um, a pastor from his church to shoot some of the video uh, for us because she kind of does- these videos in her, her spare time. So she helped us uh, shoot one of the ads. So it, it's very much, you know, right, a scrappy underdog campaign. Sometimes there's a real advantage to that, though. You can gain momentum when you're the insurgent campaign. If things go well, you can uh, you can take those risks that sometimes have more payoff in how you position yourself. Or so many times people who play it safe 
slip down, right? And people who go for it move up, it, even despite the disadvantages. I think also if you've seen some of these Senate races that we keep losing, the main race with Sarah Gideon and Iowa, Teresa Greenfield, Cal Cunningham, notoriously. I mean, we've been running these like poll tested, DC approved people who don't really say much. You know, I mean, they raise a lot of money, but their campaigns are really just devoid of inspiration. Well, sometimes we lose the ones with the inspiration too. That, okay, yes, that, 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 that is true. <laughs> but, you know, so I think with us, it's like, you know, we're just going to be bold. And, you know, like Tom's running on Medicare for all. We're not backing off on it. You know, his mother died of cancer. His wife has had cancer. Um, so we've made videos about that. We did kind of a spin on Harry and Louise for people that remember the, the Clinton era. You know, we did a spoof on that with Tom and his wife saying, but now it's for Medicare for all um, is, how, is how we're doing it. So I think, you know, just sticking to that message, and the Sunrise Wisconsin folk kids um, have endorsed us, which I think just because they were really inspired that Tom has a very, you know, unapologetic message and authentic message. And, and so they really responded to that. So they have backed us. So, yeah, I, so we're, and we've got, you know, some local labor unions who have backed us who know that Tom has, you know, the best kind of like working class blue collar advocacy record. So, you know, it's definitely slow going to try and, you know, try and tell people in DC, like, look, you know, guys, we, we, we've got a shot. He's, he's a great candidate with, you know, a great resume and the type of person that frankly we need more of. I mean, 66, like two thirds of the Senate are millionaires, Right. And I just think there's just very few people that actually understand regular folks. <laughs> so, um, so that's why it's, you know, it's a joy to work for people like that when the hours are long and this is a very long primary. You are one of not too many Asian Americans, particularly Asian American females who are running a statewide campaign. Does it make any difference to the campaign that you are to yourself? How do you think about that? Yeah, I'm one of those where I don't focus too much on it, but I'm acutely aware of it. You know, it's funny, like sometimes in campaigns, I always get this off, like, why don't you do Asian American outreach for us? And I always say no, because I just never want to be pigeonholed. And I've seen that's what sometimes they, it's what they do with folks of color, like, oh, you can only do black outreach, Latino outreach, right? And they put you there. And I actually give advice to folks like, no, man, start in fundraising. You know, if you know how to raise the money, you'll always have some power you know, or start by doing research. So you can prove you can do things that are beyond just because people will want to put you in a box, right? So for me, I always want to be like, you know what, I want to control the budget so that I can invest in Asian American outreach um, or Black outreach. Because what I've seen on campaign after campaign is that they don't invest in communities of color. And I'm always telling, you know, you know how cheap ethnic media is? And my mom is not watching MSNBC or reading the New York Times. My mom is watching, you know, her local Chinese uh, newspaper and, you know, cable news shows, you know, targeting them on YouTube that way. And I just see that, you know, we continue to make mistakes where it's like, let's just throw it all up on TV and spend millions of dollars that way. And so I do think it makes a huge difference to have managers and people in power who do look different and come at from a different perspective. But, you know, it's interesting that I've just ended up in the Midwest and, it, you know, there's it's not too much diversity out here. But in a way, I think it makes you work harder because, you know, I have to work harder to understand, you know, Wisconsinites not being from here. That goes beyond just like cheese curds and Packers. Right. But because, again, my farm advocacy, I did dairy policy for three years and dairy is my number one issue. And so I know a lot of the farmers here, some of whom have gone out of business um, because of the prices. And so I'm able to make those connections that way. 
How does Wisconsin feel to you right now, politically, I mean? It's been a state that's been close to determinant of the presidential contest the last couple elections. And from what I've seen in those pivotal states, like Biden's running well behind Trump in polls right now, what do you see going forward? Or do you think it's too early to have a sense of that? I expect to be down to the wire, like all of our races here. It does reflect just the political polarization. You know, we had Scott Walker for for many years who really did a number destroying the labor movement here. And in 2018, we were able then to win every statewide race, you know, barely. And so the governor's up again. Governor Evers is up, uh, will be on the ballot too. So it is, you know, Wisconsin in some ways is the linchpin for uh, preserving democracy. I've read what the Republicans are trying to do here with our election boards. And control of the Senate could definitely come down to this seat. And, and the funny thing is that at least, okay, yes, Biden may be unpopular, but you know who the most unpopular person is in Wisconsin politically is Ron Johnson. So that's some of our saving grace here as we, you know, in a midterm, you know, right, it's usually rough for the president's party. It is very polarized here. But again, what do we go back to? The area I'm concerned about, I mean, people talk about Milwaukee a lot. And yes, definitely the turnout in Milwaukee has not been what it is. And also those those folks shifted to Trump by a, a couple points, as we saw everywhere, you know, especially in Latino precincts. Um, and like I said, the Republicans are already investing. But the area here I'm concerned about is the, what we call the Driftless Area in western Wisconsin. You know, that used to be double digits Democrats. And now it's swung almost 40 points the other way for, for Trump and for Republicans. And that's that's going to be the wrong kind congressional seat that's also going to be highly contested. And and I feel like nobody really talks about that nationally or even within Wisconsin. Like, guys, this driftless area, we can't keep losing. And you know, a lot of those areas, a lot of farmers, um, a lot of small manufacturing being lost, uh, you know, and, and so that's the area that I also um, am concerned about because ba- Biden, you know, did worse than Hillary, even those areas, but we were able to squeak it out because, again, the suburbs kind of came through. But, you know, as we saw in Virginia, you know, it's kind of foolhardy to just depend on the suburbs for your wins. So, uh, so yeah, so I expect it to be very highly contested, you know, all the way through. The party here is doing a good job in making sure that we are doing our rural outreach that we're playing everywhere. Um, but to me, it's still an, an underlooked factor that we're losing the rural vote and that we're losing non-college voters of all races. Wisconsin is a state where over half the electorate is still going to be non-college versus, you know, Virginia, which has much more college graduates or New Jersey even. So if Democrats don't have a message for those folks, then yeah, we're not going to be doing too well no matter what. Are you happy with the leadership of the state party? Sound like it. Yeah, I think Ben Wickler has really done a a phenomenal job, um, you know, of raising money, and being a great advocate for the state. If you talk to some county chairs, they always have complaints. Um, so so we'll, we'll see. You know, the thing is, like, what's also been happening whenever we do our get out the vote, which has happened the last couple of times made on campaigns, they take the people from the rural area and they send them to like, hey, guys, let's go to Madison or Milwaukee. You're like, we need more people there. This happened to me on the J.D. Shulton race. So like we have nobody to cover, you know, these huge rural territories. And I was used to the Obama campaign in Iowa where we had like 79 field offices. And there's never going to be another campaign like that. But we were everywhere. Like every small little town had some kind of team leader, vote leader. And I was like, I was like this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And, and that's how we were able to win Iowa back when, you know, Iowa was a competitive state. And since then, you know, when I've seen these, these campaigns and these coordinators that we've run, it's just like, 
same old where we just focus on our urban centers and our suburban turnout and we just leave all these small town areas to themselves. And then we're shocked when they go like 90-10 Republican and we just can't do that. And so I'm hoping that, you know, the Wisconsin Dem Party knows that and we I will not see what's been happening in other states when it comes time. I mean, is there a question I should have asked you that I haven't? I think in terms of diversity for the consultants, you know, the fact that we have so few minorities that are doing TV and polling and direct mail is to me a real concern because, you know, we're seeing that we're losing not just non-college whites, but non-college communities of color. I mean, Eric Adams lost the Asian vote when he ran for mayor of New York. And I just think the alarm is not being sounded enough. And to me, it's actually not enough to have racial diversity on campaigns. We need some class diversity. Like we need people that don't go to college. We need people that have worked on a forklift, you know, and have that perspective. Us people who've gone to college, you know, we have a different way of viewing things and we talk differently, right, than people who don't go to college. And we're losing clearly the communications battle on that end. I mean, if you had something to say to those people who work on messaging for the Democratic Party at large, what would you mm-hmm. tell them? I would tell them to stop using, right, faculty language, as James Carville called it. I have to find myself, you know, the way I wrote in my grad school, I have to make sure I don't write like that on the campaign. Like, you know, these policies disproportionately impact marginalized communities of color. Like, nobody talks like that in the real world when I'm talking to voters, you know, or I talk to my mother mom. <laughs> That's the language I hear from every activist. The professional progressives, that's how they talk. Is that? Yes, it's how we talk in grad school. I'm not sure if that's how they talk when they're talking to people that that they're organizing, but when they talk to me, that's how they talk. No, I mean, I see it in their email communications. I see it in their Twitter feeds. And it's really, it's really, really concerning to me that the party of the people has lost like how to actually communicate with people. I'm not saying that that we can't use that type of language. It's just, you know, nothing drove me more insane. Like, I love Liz Warren. I think she would have been a phenomenal president. But her main message for the campaign was, we need big structural change in America. And I was like, big structural change? Like, who understands that? I didn't even know what structural change meant until I went to fancy Amherst College and they taught me in sociology. And I do think that was Bernie did a really good job. And because when I asked my mom, mom, what do you know about Bernie Sanders? He's like, oh, he's for, um, oh, free college. And, you know, healthcare for everybody. I'm like, yes. All right. So she understood the message, right? And you know, I asked her what Liz Warren's for. And she was like, I don't know, but she seems very smart because she's from Harvard. Um, and to Asian people, they actually like that. I mean, other voting segments, uh, l- less so. Are there other candidates or elected officials that are Democrats that you think have that knack of talking to less fancy people? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was Wellstone's, um, you know, genius, you know, even though the guy had a PhD, right, he could communicate with everybody, you know, Cher Brown, obviously, my my senator in Ohio. It's interesting, because Cher, you know, went to Yale, and he's the son of a doctor, you know, I was kind of hoping but, he would run for president last time. I, you know, I thought he, he, yeah. he was actually my pick. I think yeah. if he had run, I would have been all in for that. His wife is is also a firecracker, I'm sure as you know, and then comes, you know, her dad was a union guy. But I think the fact that there's so few shared Browns left, you know, and the Tom Harkins and, um, you know, the Byron Dorgans, you know, those prairie populists, which I think Tom is definitely in the lineage of, you know, now we, we're sort of controlled by the coasts, you know, in our party. I love the squad. 
you know, definitely as, as a woman of color, I love seeing that diversity. But sometimes when I read Ayanna Presley's emails about, you know, marginalization and disproportionality, and I'm just like, this just comes from Cambridge. And it's not even talking to our folks who are working class folks of color, you know, and, and that's, that's a major concern that I have right now um, with the party and our communications. I hear that. I mean, really nice to talk to you. Enjoyed it. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, I just, you know, really enjoy your podcast. All the people you feature are, are, are super interesting. So really uh, honored to have, have been on. That was Irene Lynn. Irene is at Irene H. Lynn on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.